1997, Utzi the Iceman was discovered by a team of archaeologists in the Italian Alps. Utzi lived in the Copper Age over 5,000 years ago. His shoes are the oldest example of footwear ever found. They are wide and waterproof and ideal for walking in the snow. They were made with bearskin, deer hide and tree bark with grass stuffed inside them. Shoes were originally designed purely to protect and support the foot, but throughout history they've often been used by the upper classes to show off status and wealth. Today I'm going to be talking about my favourite examples of these. I'm Natalie, this is Across the Ages. In 1366, a Universal Chronicle tells us of points on shoes as long as your finger called Krakows, more suitable as claws for demons than as ornaments for men. Let's set the scene. You're on a mission at the medieval market. You've got your mother-in-law coming over and she wants some lampreys for lunch. As you barge past a flock of sheep, you spot him. A rich and fashionable elite wearing shoes with such long toes that he has to tie them to his shins with chains so he can walk. He has a wide and high-stepping gait. He is the epitome of style and taste. You look at your own shoes and frown. A poor show compared to this chap. So let's imagine this shoe. We're talking a close-fitting leather or fabric. This could be an open or closed-top shoe, but the important bit is the point on the end. Now imagine that point being the same length as your foot. Now twice the size of your foot. What you're imagining is called a Krakow or Poulain. Today, I'm going to stick with the name Krakow. So how did they keep these enormous points upright? These shoes were filled with organic stuffing material that was knocking about at the time. They're shoving in hair, they're shoving in moss, they're shoving in hay. Got a spare whalebone in your front room? Get it in your shoe. Long-toed shoes have tickled the fancy of Europeans at different times, first appearing in the 12th century in Krakow, Poland, with the name referring to this origin. They reached their most exaggerated form in the late 15th century. The long pointed toe of the Krakow was an indicator of the wearer's masculinity and therefore an indication of his sexual prowess. So you've got your brand new Krakows on, but don't feel like they're making quite enough of a statement. Lucky for you, there are options available at your local market to jazz them up a bit. If you like to give people warning before you arrive, you could always add a bell to the end. If stealth is more your style, a simple decorated ball or ornament was available. Krakows were so widely worn that they made their way into military armour. Medieval Europeans loved a crusade. At the Battle of Nicopolis in 1396, the Ottomans came up against an army of European crusaders. The ever stylish French contingent was forced to cut off the tips of their Krakow shoe armour to even give them a chance of fighting. Krakows were the sexy shoe of the medieval period, if you're a fancy lord with a cracking set of ankles, you could wear a style that showed them off. Pair these low-cut, long-toed Krakows with a pair of racy tights and you'll have the gaze of the local maids following you around the market. As with fashion today, the conservative members of society didn't approve of this unashamed show of vanity, particularly when the average Joe started getting in on the action. There was an English poem written in 1388 that complained that men were unable to kneel in prayer because their toes were too long. The aristocracy, always trying to keep the peasants in their place, responded by regulating the length of the shoe's point. 
Edward III, who ruled England in the 14th century, even made a law that limited shoe length based on social class. Common people could only wear a measly 15cm toe, while gentlemen could wear a 30cm, nobility 60cm and a glorious 75cm for princes. In 1463, Edward IV had decided that Krakow's was so last year. He passed a sumptuary law restricting anyone from wearing Krakow's over the length of two inches. In 1465, the fun was over. They were banned in England altogether and eventually fell out of fashion across Europe in the 1480s. Five years later, in 1485, England saw the end of the medieval period and the start of the Tudor period, when Henry Tudor, soon to be crowned Henry VII, defeated Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth in Leicestershire. The famous King Richard III was found under a council car park in Leicester in 2012, and unfortunately for him, he was no longer around to witness the birth of this next pair of shoes. Enter stage left, the Tudor footbag. Duckbill, cowmouth, hornbill, platypus or the bear paw. No, I really am talking about a shoe. Made fashionable by Henry VIII, these wide-toed shoes can be seen in a number of his portraits. Instead of being long and slender like the Krakow, the Tudor footbag was square-toed and wide. Made with leather or fabric, these boxy shoes often had slashes in the top of the shoe to show off brightly coloured hose. Just like the Krakow, as this style became more exaggerated, they would need to be stuffed with organic material to stop them being floppy. Henry VIII is arguably the most famous Tudor in English history. He succeeded his dad, Henry VII, in 1509. Henry VIII is infamous for breaking away from the church, who wouldn't allow him to divorce Catherine of Aragon. You see, in the 1530s, Henry met the irresistible Anne Boleyn. In 1533, he moved mountains to call her his wife, but only three years later she was executed in the Tower of London. Henry went on to have four more wives, and I could spend all day talking about them, but today I'm here to talk to you about his shoes. Henry was a fashionista and used his clothing to show everyone how virile, strong and healthy he was. He was head of the Church of England now after all. Some footbags sported soles that reach a width of 30 centimetres, which was like walking around with a landscape A4 notepad on the front of each foot. Again, at the point where these became excessive, a sumptuary law was passed to limit the width and they fell out of fashion in the mid to late 16th century. For now, let's leave Europe and head for 10th century China. For a millennium, the Chinese custom of foot binding was considered a status symbol and a mark of beauty. It is the process of tightly binding the feet of young girls in order to make them as small as possible. The practice is said to have started in the 10th century, inspired by a dancer who bound her feet into the shape of a new moon. She entranced Emperor Li Yu by dancing on her toes inside a six-foot golden lotus covered with ribbons and precious stones. Gradually, other court ladies, with nothing but time and money, took up footbinding, making it a status symbol among the elite. A tiny foot was the peak of female refinement. For families who had marriageable daughters, the most desired bridal foot size was called the golden lotus. The size of the golden lotus was three inches. Now really think about that. That is the diameter of a tin can. A four inch silver lotus was acceptable and respected. Five inch and longer were dismissed as iron lotuses. So just how young were these girls when the process started? The process had to be started between the ages of three and five while the bones were still growing. 
The feet were broken and bound in place using a silk strip. After two years, the process was complete. Specially shaped shoes were worn over the feet called lotus shoes. Widely seen as barbaric, the practice was banned in 1912. Some of those women who endured this painful tradition are still alive today. The next shoe has been worn across the globe, introducing a shoe familiar to us all, the high heel. High heels in today's society are a feminine shoe, but this has not always been the case. Depictions of high heels date back to ancient Egypt. However, they became really popular worn in 15th century Persia when soldiers wore them to help secure their feet in stirrups. When the soldier stood up in his stirrups, the heel helped to secure his stance so that he could shoot his bow and arrow more easily. Heels were intended to be an instrument of war rather than one of seduction. Persian migrants brought the shoe trend to Europe, where the male aristocrats, looking to be the next fashion trendsetter, started to wear them. The heels made the posturing male elite look taller and therefore formidable and dominant. Perfect for the inflated ego of the upper classes where appearance was all. Heels were not supposed to be pretty, they were supposed to be scary and masculine. It also didn't hurt to be a little further away from the repulsive detritus that you'd find on a 15th century street. 16th century courtesans, a pretty fancy term for a high-class prostitute, soon began wearing high heels as a kind of sexy androgynous symbol. Kind of like walking about wearing nothing but a men's shirt making pancakes in the morning after the night before. These courtesans had special privileges that ordinary women just didn't have. They kept company almost exclusively with men. They were to please them, and what better way than enjoying what men enjoyed? This included smoking, drinking and wearing masculine high heels. Having such easy access to male-dominated areas of life was one of the few upsides to being a courtesan. Yes, you had to sleep with men regardless of their physical allure. You could get burnt as a witch and you'll probably catch syphilis. But at least you didn't have to answer to your husband while being a prisoner in your own household. Anyway, I digress. Back to the heels. Soon after, it became accepted for high-class women to wear them. Venetian women wore some crazy tall heels called choppins. You're probably thinking of a stiletto shape, but you need to throw that out. These were basically a sandal on the top with a wooden or cork base under the foot. Imagine a pair of wedges, but the wedges are mega, mega tall. Some of the most extreme choppins could reach up to 75 centimetres tall. So how the hell did these women get about? Easy. You just hired men or maids to act as crutches. What seems even more insane is that the choppins were completely hidden under skirts. The higher your footwear, the more cloth was required for the dress, another way to show off how much money you had. In 1430, the height of choppins was limited by Venetian law to 7 centimetres, but this regulation was widely ignored. For our next high heel, close your eyes and imagine you're in a 14th century Turkish bathhouse, also known as a hammam. You've never been in one? Okay, let me set the scene. You're in a large domed room supported by high arches on top of beautifully carved columns. The walls are lined with wash basins and there are naked people everywhere, socialising, washing and relaxing. I hasten to add that the baths had separate areas for men and women. Back to you. But hang on, your feet are getting covered in soap and dirt. This wouldn't be a problem if you had this next pair of shoes. I'm going to be telling you about Turkish bathing clogs, known as Nalin. 
These shoes were worn right through the Ottoman period, which spanned between the 14th and 20th centuries. Nalin consisted of a wooden sole with two huge wooden plates elevating the wearer off the ground. One under the heel and one under the ball of the foot, starting narrow at the top and widening towards the floor. These incredible pieces of art were made with three pieces of wood. They could be inlaid with mother of pearl, precious metals or tortoiseshell. To attach the nail into the foot, a fabric strap adorned with jewels and embroidery would hold the foot in place, though it's anyone's guess how they managed to walk in them. The nalin were almost exclusively worn in bathhouses to protect the foot from dirty water, a much more elegant solution than a pair of crocs commonly worn in modern-day swimming pool showers. So how high were these nalin? They ranged from a modest 5 centimetres all the way up to 30 centimetres. The height and decoration, as has been a common theme today, communicated the status and wealth of the owner. Whilst both men and women wore nalin, it was a traditional object that was part of a woman's marriage dowry, gifted to her from her in-laws. While the material value of customised nalin showed the socio-economic status of the groom's family, it was a way to let everyone know that this woman was now married. What I find fascinating about these instances is how important it seems to be to show off your wealth. Literally wearing an item of clothing that physically inhibits you from moving around continually pops up in history to make it clear to the lesser folk that you are better than them because you are not required to do physical labour. Specifically to shoes, we still show off wealth with our footwear. A prime example would be Louboutin heels, those fancy black stilettos with the red sole, which come in around the £500 mark. It's even extended to wellies, with people paying around £100 just to have that logo stamped on the front while they walk through the mud. Now, I can't criticise too harshly. I have a pair of Doc Martens and countless pairs of Vans and Converse, so I suppose I'm just as guilty for wanting my feet to look cool. We just have to be thankful that today the latest footwear doesn't require working from height training. And that's your lot today, history fans. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Be sure to share with other history nerds if you enjoyed it and leave a five-star review if you think it's deserved. You can contact me on Twitter at underscore across the ages or you can leave me a message through Anchor FM. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I'll be delving into another topic across the ages.